There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Hello, I'm Chris Meek. Welcome to this week's edition of Next Steps Forward. As always, it's great to have you with us again. Our guest today is Dr. Robin Schofield, Director of Culture, Wellbeing, and Sports Psychology with the University of Southern California Athletics Department. Her other titles are Clinical Professor of Psychiatry and the Behavioral Sciences in USC's Keck School of Medicine and Associate Director of Clinical and Sports Psychology Services with USC's Student Health and the Keck School's Counseling and Mental Health Services. And she just happens to be an Olympic medalist, having won a bronze medal at age 13, that's right, 13, as a swimmer of the Canadian national team in the 1976 Games in Montreal. Stay with us as we discuss the field of sports psychology, mental health, the importance of purpose-driven performance, and more. Robin Schofield, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Thanks, Chris. Nice to be here. No, thanks for your time. Before we start, for our USC family out there, we got to give a little fight on, so <laughs> thanks, thanks for that. I always have to kick things off on a positive note. That's a lot of titles. We're going to get into all of those, but that's <laughs> tremendous accolades and, uh, and congratulations. Thank so you. So as I mentioned, we have a lot to talk about in the next 52 minutes but we have to start with the Olympics. How'd you end up on the Canadian Olympic team and tell us how you won a bronze medal at the prime age of 13 years old. So uh, I was actually um, born in Ohio, but my father was transferred up to Montreal with his company when I was about three. So I really learned to swim there and grew up there for the most part. And, um, you know, actually, uh, I mean, I, I was in a small community of about 300 homes um, where the these were first time home homeowners. So the families got together and built a pool in the neighborhood and it was 100 degrees Fahrenheit and 100 percent humidity in the summer. So everybody spent three months in the pool of doing some water sports. So um, so I was the first Olympian out of the community. The interesting part of that story is that we had about five different Olympians, uh, other swimmers, synchronized swimmer, diver, um, all, that all came out of that small community. So um, kind of an interesting, um, you know, uh, social uh, situation that, um, you know, I think building something and building hope can really have influence on people. But but anyway, so I ended up just, you know, naturally transitioning to a, a year-round program and that was, um, you know, the person, uh, George Gates, who, who started that program, really believed in coach education. And so um, grew three great top coaches in the country, and they all were there um, during my formative years and uh, coached us up. And so I was just very fortunate to be part of that at the time and, um, and to have them help capitalize on the skills and gifts I had. and. Uh, so it was, it was a great time. And I apologize. I made a podcast rookie mistake and forgot to hit record. Do you mind if I hit record for this part? No problem. Thank you. We're still live. This is just for okay. our viewers at home. Recording yep. in progress. And you'll see the Zoom uh, little legal disclaimer there. So how old were you when you started swimming and what attracted you to the sport? So uh, I started competitively. So, I mean, I was in that pool 
you know, pretty much from two or three on, I mean, after we moved there. Um, so, and then, um, you know, it was just a matter of which thing were you going to do? Everybody did something and it was all for fun. Um, but I did start competitively when I was five and moved pretty much right into year round swimming. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I was a racer, (laughs) a sprinter through and through the need Um, for speed. Yeah. Just really enjoyed racing a lot and, uh, enjoyed the physicality, the sport, enjoyed the fun of it very much enjoyed the, my friends and the camaraderie. So that, that was really what attracted me to sport throughout my career. So you started when you were five, you're on the Olympics when you're 13, we're on the same medley team a long time. How are swimming medleys teams chosen? Is it a matter of choosing the four fastest swimmers? How's that work? Yes, they choose. Um, I mean, you try out. So every Olympic relay team may vary, you know, um, and so it's really the four people in each event who are the fastest, who are chosen for the relay. So, yeah, I had swum previously with some of them on some teams before, but that that was that constellation was the first time we all really were together there. And you also swam the 100 meter breaststroke in the 1976 Olympic Games. How'd that go? And for you, what were the differences between competing as a team member? And competing individually? So I enjoyed both always. Um, I, like I said, I was a racer, so I really enjoyed uh, my individual event, always did. Um, but again, enjoyed the, you know, it's fun having a, a relay team to cheer for and, and it's a different feeling. Um, and, you know, I did fine. I, um, that was the first time I swam semifinals and I got a little bit too nervous, I think for semifinals, cause I had just held, hold on, I would have made it into finals. So that was just definitely disappointing for me. Um, but, uh, given that, you know, I was thinking it was my first Olympics, um, you know, you recover and move on. So, yeah. And I understand that you set numerous Canadian and Commonwealth records. You also competed in the 1978 Commonwealth games. There, you won a gold in the 100 meter breaststroke. Unfortunately, that was your final international competition because Canada, like a number of other countries, boycotted the 1980 Summer Olympics in Moscow. Your whole life would have been centered on winning a medal in those games. How did the loss of that opportunity and goal affect you? So I did swim in the Pan Am Games in 79, um, but it was, you know, I remember it distinctly. I had, um, I chose, uh, Olympic year to leave my family and I, I was close to my family um, and moved to Toronto for the head Olympic and swim with the head Olympic coach there for that year. Um, and so I moved just actually before I was 17. Um, and uh, I can remember actually um, after winter nationals coming down here t- down to the United States on recruiting trips. Mm-hmm. Um, and the United States has already made a decision that they will, were not going to compete. They made it while I was, you know, traveling across the South, looking at different schools. And I, you know, I was young and naive, and I was like, I wasn't too bothered by it. Cause I thought, oh, well, I'm going, <laughs> uh, we're going, you know, so, uh, and it wasn't too long after I got back from that recruiting trip that Canada said, they're not going either. And so. I think that hit pretty hard. I had a, I had a big adjustment 
um, moving out on my own um, and had just started to kind of really get on my feet um, right around winter nationals. So uh, that definitely took the wind out of my sails. They, they really worked hard to try and create some other incentives. Um, but, you know, I was pretty disappointed. So um, I really had looked forward to just changing it all, getting time off and changing it all up and, and going to college and swimming in college, which is very different from club swimming. Swimming in college. So without the Olympics, he chose to swim at the University of Southern California. Why USC? So um, it just the bigger context is in those days, Canada had no vehicle for keeping elite athletes who weren't like hockey players or football players. They, they just didn't have a lot of sports scholarships. So if you were in an elite level, all the Canadian athletes went to the United States to be able to continue with their education, a collegiate education, and continue at a pretty high level of sport. And so, you know, not surprisingly, Canadians decided to flock south, right? <laughs> so my recruiting trip was all along the south. Um, Can't imagine why coming from Canada. Right. <laughs> So, um, but um, a lot of the people who I had, uh, who were on the Canadian Olympic team in 76 were actually at USC. Most of the men's, a lot of the men's team had Canadian Olympians on it. And at that time, USC, um, you know, the men's team was American and Canadian Olympians and the women's team um, had only started really, um, but they had um, other Canadians, another Canadian female Olympian and um, someone from England, a couple from England, Australia, um, Sweden. So, um, so they were used to recruiting from all over and, and they were recruiting Olympians. So, um, and cause I had some friends down here, it was very persuasive. <laughs> Not a bad place to end up. Yeah, no, for sure. Title IX, the federal civil rights law passed as part of the education amendments of 1972. It prohibited sex-based discrimination in any school or any other education program receiving federal funding. How did Title IX change your life? So it's what allowed me to come to USC because Title IX, I think, went into effect around 72. And USC had its first female scholarship athlete, I think, around 76. And I came in 80. So, I mean, that there is a direct impact for me. Um, it allowed me to come and get a college education and continue with my sport. So definitely huge in my life. So we go from the Olympics to college at USC and now your professional career. You worked at Wall Street early in your career. How did that happen? Did you go straight for graduating from USC right in the financial sector? So I had been actually toying with majoring in psychology. I was also very practical. Um, and I actually, for my first two years, I. I, you know, um, the way I did my general education, I sort of geared it so I could either go into business or into psychology. So I pushed the decision as long as I possibly could. But uh, the one time I talked to a career counselor, they're like, who's paying for grad school? And I'm like, I am. And they're like, well, you can't do psychology with an undergraduate degree, but you can go into business. So you can at least find out sooner if you're going to like it. And so that made sense to me. Uh, so I became a business major. And decided I didn't want to be in a banking program for 20 years and then end up finding out I hated it. And so I thought I'm better, 
better go somewhere where I can figure out what it's really going to be like and, and understand, you know, what I was in for. So I decided to go to Wall Street. And they, at that time, they had these analyst positions in investment banks uh, for undergrads for a couple of years. So, um, so I applied and once it took a while because they kept thinking I was from University of South Carolina. <laughs> I was like, what? A West Coast school that isn't named Stanford. Um, but um, anyways, I was fortunate and able to secure one of those positions. And that's how I ended up there. And why did you change paths and opt for a career in sports psychology? So after being there, um, you know, I like the analytical side, but the rest didn't really do a lot for me. I did apply um, and was accepted to Kellogg at Northwestern, um, and but just wasn't clear on my personal vision of where that was going to take me and what I wanted to do. So I deferred my admittance for a year and decided um, to go do volunteer work in Africa for a year. And, um, and then I chose East Africa just because um, second language was English. And at that time, it was not like it is now. Um, there weren't a lot of Westerners over there at all, not even, you know, um, you know, kids doing summer internships or volunteer work. So uh, I needed to, to choose a place where I could get into and out of, you know, in a reasonable way, because I was really by myself. Um, so I decided, you know, it's a great year. I obviously never did any swimming there. Uh, so wanted to go somewhere I hadn't been and wanted to do a year service. So went there and looked for work and found work at a boys orphanage. And it was, it was, you know, so the, the teachers there were a third Kenyan teachers, um, a third um, missionaries, and then a third international volunteers like me. And you live on the compound. And so these are, the school becomes the guardian of the, the boys, 1300 boys, um, you know, grade school all the way up. And, uh, and so you do a lot of informal counseling. And that's where I was like, mm, I like this. I think I'm going to think about switching. So that was really the catalyst. And you had no idea that that would be your path when you went there. It was just a, a gap year, if you will, taking a year off to volunteer and I had my interest, my original interest in psychology came from my personal sport career because I knew I was on a, a great swim team that really developed kids all the way to the top. And I knew I worked hard, but I knew that a lot of those 300 people that I trained with worked hard too. But I came to understand through my own success that I definitely had a mindset um, that was helpful for, for competing and succeeding. And I always thought, wow, if you could take that mindset and apply it to the average person, you could make their life better. And that was my original interest. So, um, but it didn't circle back as practical until after I decided I was going to make a cruise ship. So let's fast forward from Africa to today. Can you describe your role as director of culture, well-being, and sports psychology and the work that you and your colleagues do? And in what ways is it similar to other universities' sports psychology programs? So I've been here at USC for 24 years and started sort of just by myself, <laughs> um, ended up doing a pre-doctoral internship here and um, still knew when I came back, this was quite a few years later, um, knew some of the coaches. So they did refer to me 
And um, I told them I was on internship. And um, as it was ending, you know, I got some calls from coaches. Hey, I'd like you to see this person and this person this summer. And I'm like, well, I'm actually leaving. Um, and I thought I was going to go work uh, at my previous position with incarcerated teens. And um, anyway, so they talked to the athletic director and the athletic director called and said, you want to hire her. So um, that's how it kind of all started. And, um, you know, it was definitely a, if they build it, they will come situation. I've been busy since day one and the demand has just steadily increased and it, it's matched with the general numbers across the country for this age group. And, and I think the general messaging, my first at least 15 years here, if not more, and even today is that what we're seeing amongst student athletes is what we're seeing amongst the call the 18 to 24 year old population. So um, I used to take those numbers into coaches meeting to argue for more support. <laughs> and, and fortunately I've had a lot of support from all, I've worked for four different athletic directors and, and they understood it. They understood the human side and from Mike Garrett, who really, I think believed in having grown up close to SC in, uh, you know, I think really understood that the personal challenges that people face are generally the ones that interfere with sport performance more than performance enhancement techniques per se. So, yeah. The USC sports psychology department's philosophy is that the healthier the athlete is as a whole person, the better they will perform. What does it mean to be a whole healthy person? I think it means to connect and relate to our student athletes as humans first, right? We all are humans first. Um, I think the evolution of sport over the last couple of years um, and larger cultural trends in our society um, have come to um, at least seem to value um, achievement over character. And in character is something we can control. Um, and it's it's, it's very, it's something that um, is essential to our well-being. And um, I think um, while I believe striving is very good for human beings and makes us better human beings, I think you can never let go of the fact that you're dealing with a human being. They have worth, whether they're an athlete or not. And, um, and that, that, at least for myself and my staff, that's where we're moving from. We're not moving from any other agenda. And, and so it's the agenda of the student athlete. And, you know, I've told every athletic director I work for, you know, you know, I mean, I, in, it's interesting because as things have evolved, I think there's an assumption that um, what's good for a team or good for an athletic department is not in line with what's good for the student athlete. And I've found that's very rarely not the case if you have good people running the programs and um, following good values that, you know, sometimes there's hard decisions, just like being a parent, right? When you're limit setting with, as a parent, you're not doing it to torture yourself or your child. You're doing it to grow a good human being. And um, so sometimes the nuances of that on both sides um, are challenged. Um, but for the most part, I don't find those objectives in opposition to each other. Um, so, yeah. 
you mentioned that you've been counseling student athletes at USC for 24 years now. Have their mental health issues changed over that time? And if so, are they different now than they were back then? Um, yes, definitely. Um, they take on a different flavor with every generation, I think. Um, and uh, I think, I mean, definitely the severity and number of symptoms are up. Um, I also think that um, there's a little bit of a misunderstanding at times that, you know, ups and downs and having some anxiety, um, some downtimes, that's also part of life too, right? And so um, I think sometimes we've gotten to the point of hitting the panic button and I'll tell like our staff, like if someone comes in and says they're anxious right then and there, they pull up a chair and let's both sit down and take a minute and do some deep breathing. You know, like we want to empower people um, and not make an assumption because someone is feeling some anxiety that it's at a clinical level. Um, and so, and, and, and that helps them build an understanding for how to cope with themselves, their responsibility for coping with themselves and just building inner strength and tolerances, which is what we have to do. You know, the, um, you hear college kids a lot say, you know, it's going to be so much easier. Life will be so much easier after and you're like, Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Call me in five years. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so we want to help them grow that inner strength, right? Um, um, this generation is way more resourceful, right? So that's helped reduce stigma. We still have stigma in certain pockets, but I firmly believe that it's our staff who carry more stigma than, than our student athletes today. And, and, you know, they're trying to advocate, but we're trying to teach them not to talk about therapy like it's eating broccoli or liver or something they don't like. Um, but most of the student athletes are very receptive to it. They're receptive to it for personal growth and development, for relationship health, uh, to come in and just get a little bit of guidance here and there. Um, and we, we're fortunate here that we can offer the breadth of services from individual performance enhancement to managing more acute kinds of mental health issues. Um, so, um, you know, just in terms of how, how that's changed, I'd say that encapsulates a lot of it. The, one thing I think that has changed a little bit that is also sort of um, to what I was speaking about earlier, um, just that, that focus on achievement um, over you know, your character and you as a human being um, has shifted what we're seeing as well. So when I first came, you know, there's been performance anxiety since the dawn of Olympics or sport performance, right? So um, that's normal and it's healthy. It, it activates us. Um, and, and so that used to be a little bit more discreet. If someone had anxiety, it was usually brought on by other aspects of their life that, that created that for them. Um, and what I did see over my first 10 years was that, you know, the performance anxiety getting more acute and going unchecked, moving into things like generalized anxiety disorder. And I think, and other kinds of anxiety. And I think that is in large part to um, sort of that internalized objectification of themselves as primarily an athlete instead of primarily a 
whole human being that has many identities and many gifts. And so that was definitely a distinct change that is still still very much a part of what we're seeing. You mentioned earlier that USC brings in the elite of the elite for student athletes. And when you and I spoke, it was a big day for SC football last week. So we'll see how we do this fall. <laughs> no pressure, coach. Do those student athletes feel more pressure than kids with maybe less athletic ability? Or are they just used to dealing with the higher expectations of them because they're so successful? I think it's a little of both. I mean, you know, again, it's, it's, it's how you absorb, you know, athletic culture, sport culture. And that, that really happens long before they get here. I mean, where a lot of the work needs to be done today is in youth sport. Um, because that objectification is internalized long before they get here. And should our coaches and staff not be contributing to that? Absolutely. We should be connecting with them as human beings first and cultivating a relationship through which you can teach them the technique and strategies and, and mindset that they need to be excellent performers. Um, but um, uh you know, a lot of that happens um, before they get here. And so, you know, you could have somebody who's very much internalized that who ends up at a D3 school and they may feel the pressure more than someone who ends up at a D1 school. So exactly how that reverberates their family culture, other things they have going, going on in their life you know, can be very different. So manifestation, it can be all over the place and isn't necessarily dependent on being at a more mm -hmm. intense environment. Is there more pressure and more, partly there's more visibility, right? Like being in LA can feel like a warm bath when everything's going well, because you get a lot of attention and a lot of kudos. When things aren't going well, that can feel prickly and not fun. And it's the same for our coaches and our staff and everyone. And so is there more intensity around that? Yes, there is. Um, but how the family supports them, um, how our system supports them, um, you know, how they, they have to broaden and deepen their coping strategies. They have to um, be able to hang on to who they are independent of their sport and they'll weather the pressure better. Um, so it's, it's definitely a fit thing, you know, um, I think that's the case, whether you're thinking about athletics or not, but you want to try and make a good fit for yourself. We've been talking to Robin Schofield, director of culture, well-being and sports psychology with the university of Southern California athletics department. And we'll be right back after a short break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The White House Doctor Makes House Calls. Listen every week for House Calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. Dr. Connie has served as the White House physician under three U.S. presidents. Now she joins the Voice America Empowerment Channel to help you enrich yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Our guests will include professionals from a variety of fields who will bring you tips that you can apply to your own life. Listen for House Calls with Dr. Connie every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We hear, just be you, a lot these days. But who are you? What is an authentic life? The answer to these questions and more will be answered on The Authentic Living Show, hosted by Andrea Matthews. 
Andrea will interview some of today's spiritual, psychological experts and will provide her own wisdom to help you raise your consciousness to the level of your I am. Listen for Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Heard live every Wednesday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. listening to Next Steps Forward. To reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to chris at nextstepsforward.com. Now, back to this week's show. And we are back. I'm Chris Meek, host of Next Steps Forward. And we're with Robin Schofield, Director of Culture, Wellbeing, and Sports Psychology with the University of Southern California Athletics Department. Robin, we saw 32-time Olympic and World Championship medalist Simone Biles bow out of the 2020 Olympic gymnastic competition because she was feeling the weight of the world on her shoulders. Skier Michaela Schifrin struggled under the pressure during the Winter Olympics. And we all know four-time Grand Slam singles tennis champion Naomi Osaka, who took two mental health breaks last season, said she's not 100% sure she'll compete at Wimbledon after losing the first round of the French Open this past Monday. These are all athletes at the peak of their sports. What has changed in recent years to cause athletes to be more open about mental health? So just to be clear, um, I never comment on individual athletes, professional USC athletes or any other athletes. So my comments reflect more general trends and societal dynamics. Um, But Again, I think um, um, as sport has become more visible over the last few decades, um, athletes in general are in front of the media and uh, more. And, um, you know, our society is very focused on achieving and having success and celebrating that. And athletes occupy a big um, part of that space. And so, um, if you pair that with what we've seen um, in in this 18 to 24 year old um, age group, and yes, professional athletes continue on uh, years from there, but um, you've kind of got a a, a, um, snippet of, of people who are in the public eye and being challenged um, at, at, at a time in their life when they're often being challenged. Um, and so I think it's just sort of naturally become a space for our athletes to talk about how they're being challenged. And, um, and so I think it's great that they've been able to take this very human part of who they are and bring it forward, um, and help folks know that, um, you know, inner strength doesn't mean we don't struggle inner strength comes from struggle. It comes from going through it and not, not actually being stoic. You don't, stoicism doesn't 
doesn't develop insight, doesn't develop coping, uh, doesn't develop maturity, um, it doesn't develop inner strength. And so um, they're breaking down those myths and helping people get access to help that they need. And um, so I think it's, it's great that people are coming forward. You've also seen the trend in recent years where some youth leagues don't keep scores. There are no winners or losers and everyone gets a participation trophy. You've been a world-class competitor in a fiercely competitive sport. And you now work with youngsters who are in the pressure cooker of top tier college athletics. What's your philosophy on that? So, you know, for me, that's like um, every kid taking a test and then getting an A, right? Because they took the test. So, so that's where we confuse, I think, what, what it means to be human, right? Our value is inherent in the fact that we're human, right? That's our value. So whether you're the president of the United States or someone cleaning an office, your inherent value as a human is the same, right? And, you know, um, but getting a trophy is about competency, like getting an A. And it can include some talent, usually does, but it includes hard work, character development, you know, all of that. That's competency. That has nothing to do with our dignity and our worth. So we've kind of confused that and, and you know, like not allowing um, a child or a young adult or an adult to understand, wow, you know, this may not be where I belong, but I have a lot to offer in other intellectual gifts, personality gifts, possibly physical gifts, um, you know, that me not being a fit here is, does not mean I don't have worth. So we've come to confuse that idea. Um, and um, I think that's a disservice to our youth, um, our emerging adults and adults alike, um, because we all have something to contribute. It, you know, it may not be exactly, I mean, it takes a while to figure out where we fit, right? So, yeah. And for the record, I also am against participation trophies, having three kids <laughs> in sports. And so I, I appreciate that. And your point too about figuring out where we fit, you know, I think I mentioned how, uh, you know, when I started school, I wanted to be an aerospace engineer and design America's Cup sailboats. And after my chemistry and, and physics classes <laughs> freshman year, I'm like, okay, that's not a real fit for me. So <laughs> where can I find another path? And so that's it. you become stronger and better as an individual and as a human being by learning from your failures, learning from your mistakes, and not just being one of the masses who are all just there in an even par. I mean, that's why there's a reason there's a bell curve and things like that. And so... Uh, I appreciate your insight on that. And yes, I do not design America's Cup sailboats. <laughs> as much as I wish I did. You know, but to continue with that, in general, do you feel that most parents put too much pressure on kids to be winners? Yes. Good, good answer. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> you know, what's the role of the parent? You know, you have to think about what's the role of the parent. And to me, the number one role is to develop um, people of good character with good values who, who thrive and become, you know, develop their autonomy through mastery and through good character. Um, and we, and those things are super important for overall well-being, all of them having, you know, good well-being mean requires good relationships. Um, and you develop 
mastery and autonomy through relationships. So that enhances it. But we've come as a society to focus more on mastery. And we kind of left the relationship character piece behind a little. So we need to kind of build those up on even scale, uh, you know, to be a little bit more even as we go forward. And one of the things that I witness, you know, so I've been blessed to be a coach on my son's little league teams over the last handful of years. He's been lucky. He's had some great head coaches and they've been great in terms of teaching teamwork. You know, we're, in, we're not individuals. We're here as a team. We win and lose as a team. Uh, one person doesn't win a game for us, even though they may have had the hit. And on the other side of the field, more often than not, I can see parents who are continuing their athletic career. <laughs> and putting that pressure on their child of maybe where they didn't win the little league world series, or they didn't get that participation yeah. trophy or whatever. And do you feel that that's part of this dynamic in terms of parents putting pressure on their kids? Is it just a, an extension of their sports career? I mean, I, so behavior, one of the things we say in, in my industry is behavior is multiply determined, whether it's collective behavior or individual behavior. So, so, um, could that be contributing to it? Yes. But I think parents are also responding to some societal issues like higher education is astronomically expensive and has far outpaced the cost of living. Like that's a real worry for families. Um, that has increased, you know, um, um, some of the parental behavior, but also our systems have been affected by it. Like we, we've decided it's important to teach college and high school now right? Everybody take a million APs. That's developmentally inappropriate. So we are, it's not so hard to shove content in a kid's head. It's hard to manage life and learn and excel at learning. And so what happened is when we're trying to shove in too much content before their executive functioning has developed and they can manage all the things that that takes, parents naturally have had to step in a little bit more. And that there was, you know, how we coined the overbearing parent. An entire generation of parents wasn't, you know, crazy. They were responding to a certain extent to their environment. Now, some parents took it too far and are overbearing. And those who, who couldn't see what was happening um, and, had, and were worried and maybe had other things contributing to their worry um, may have well-intended, but focused on um, achievement more a little bit more. Um, and, and that's not a great thing to develop character and to develop well-being because you can't control it. You can only control your side of the tennis court or the football field or whatever. You cannot control your competitors. So you're basing character development and the development of a child on something they can't control. And that doesn't create stability. It creates anxiety, right? So, um, so I think it's more complicated than people want to, to make it. Um, but yeah. And staying with the, the parents and the student athlete, are there warning signs for parents that their student athlete or their student scholar is feeling too much pressure? Sure. I mean, the hallmark is a significant change in, in behavior or functioning in some direction. You know, if they were super outgoing and now they're isolated, um, it, you know, Loss of motivation, we very much attribute to in athletics will, right? Like we're just not, not exercising our free will to, to you know, um, be enthusiastic and have a good attitude. And um, 
when people start struggling with mental health issues, it can very much look like a bad attitude. Um, so you really have to pause and you have to have a lot of conversation. Um, and, and that's the job of the parent is not necessarily to intervene every five minutes, but to be watching. They need to be present and watching as their kids grow and, and open the conversation for what struggle looks like. Another thing we go to quite quickly is, oh, my kid's depressed. And now the entire environment has to shift around that kid. And that's not how it works either. Um, you know, we definitely want to provide services and help and support, but the, the work is still on the individual and it's a family affair, you know, that it requires loving, supporting relationships as we're healing. Um, so, um, you know, yeah, I mean, you want to, you want to be careful, especially in athletics, um, to pause when you see something change. Obviously, the obvious thing is that they're becoming very anxious or you're seeing signs of them being down. Um, they don't seem to be able to sleep, um, moody. Now you've got hormones, hormones in there too. So um, mixes it up a little bit, but uh, relationship struggles, um, you know, changes in grades, things like that. There's, there's lots of signs and, and they want to start a conversation. You don't want to hit the panic button. You definitely want to be able to have a conversation so your kid knows that you're open to hearing about them not doing well. And the not doing well in on a test is not the problem. The not doing well inside ourselves is something that needs to be a non-negotiable for parents. Before the break, we were talking about the role that being a whole healthy person plays in an athlete's ability to perform at high levels and the importance of being purpose and values driven. As your team begins to work with student athletes, roughly what percentage of those kids are already purpose and values driven performers and what percentage are simply performance driven? So I think the vast majority are a mix. You can't, you can't have grown up in this society and not have some problem. You know, there's a, there's few, I, I, um, a friend of mine, Ben Holberg actually did research on this and, um, in an athlete population. And I think, um, uh, the smaller percentage was those who were strictly purpose-based, which is purpose is just being connected to your values and being connected to um, meaning beyond the self, um, a purpose greater than the self. And, um, and that transcends whatever you're doing at any given time, right? Um, it's about how you're doing what you're doing. And so values are what you can use the word values. You can use the word character. Um, you know, if one of your values is to be honest, you would be described as an honest person, right? So they're they're kind of interchangeable. Um, but um, we have probably a larger percentage who are more performance driven. They are there. They want those external rewards, and that's how they think ultimately they're going to be, um, you know, loved and accepted and um, supported, um, but the largest percentage today are, are in the middle. Um, so um, you see a mixture and it creates confusion as our adults are developing. And so, um, you know, I talk a lot about the life cycle of uh, elite athlete. I wrote an article about it um, with Ben Holberg um, and 
there's a lot of developmental change that happens in an elite sport career. And in that emerging adult time is when a lot of, it can feel like it's in competition with normal developmental needs of that age group. And it's confusing. And if you don't have somewhat of a values-based identity, um, it's more confusing. So it often creates an existential crisis. And if there's an opportunity for the athlete to have a private space or support or an openness to be able to talk about that, like, wait a second, I never used to think about anything but my sport. And now I'm thinking about a lot of other things and I'm confused and I don't know if I should be doing my sport. Giving them the space to talk that out is very empowering. And vast majority, at least that come to a D1 school they want to be in sport. They've just kind of lost their meaning uh, connected to it. And they need the space to be able to reconnect. I imagine the fair share of high-performing student athletes are perfectionists. Being a perfectionist certainly helps them become high achievers, but can also contribute to mental health struggles? Yes. So perfectionism is a construct. It's not a reality, right? So we kind of have to start there. It's a thought, it's an idea. Um, and striving for doing something perfect is, is fine. Perfectly is fine. Um, it, 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 it can contribute to our drive, our, you know, our commitment to, uh, attention to detail. Um, but when, when things aren't going well, um, that the way that, um, that, that is used for achievement can backfire in struggle, in times of struggle. Um, because it's, it's a little bit about being relentlessly on and hypervigilant about what you're doing and making sure you're doing everything correctly. And that's just not realistic, right? Human beings, we ebb and flow. We have good days, bad days, moments. Um, and, the thing, and we operate largely. In, in the less than perfect day and environment and mood. And so does competition. Um, and you have to be prepared for that. And perfectionistic thinking doesn't incorporate that. So it can be very critical. And that doesn't work well when you're working through struggle. So I always say, when does perfectionism work best? And student athletes flounder, but somebody eventually gets like, when everything's going perfectly, right? So that doesn't make it, that's not what makes you resilient. Perfectionism doesn't make you resilient. You have to be flexible and adaptive. And it's kind of like what happened in COVID. We had two different um, segments that didn't thrive well. One was folks who had pre-existing mental health or situational concerns that were challenging. The other one were the more the perfectionistic kind of per, uh, student athlete who looked like, like the coaches, ideal student athlete, they couldn't, you know, couldn't adjust to the, what was a really hard time during COVID. And um, so, yeah. And what do you do when you have a student who won't admit that they need help? And what should a parent do if they have a child in that situation? I mean, it takes time. Um, You know, I would say, get, you know, recognize this may, if they really are, you know, deeply identifying with athletic culture and, um, you know, uh, very stoic, if they experience shame and asking for help, it's going to take time to unwind that and sort of build a new 
template. Um, and you can use all kinds of metaphors. You know, if you have a broken leg, you go to the orthopedic doctor, um, but also just helping them understand that that struggle is, is part of success, right? It's like, you know, it's, uh, I think it was Michael Jordan, you know, it's the baskets he missed that made him successful. And, and it's the falling down that makes you stronger. You know, the thing that the athletes do well is that they get up, right? And it's in the getting up that you develop inner strength and insight doesn't come until after the struggle. That's the thing that people, so that, that's why people want to sit down and tell athletes how it is if they're not on point, right? And it's the shift is an experiential, it's an emotional shift that changes behavior and changes your well-being. So um, it's going to be a conversation. It's going to be many conversations. It's going to be showing your own vulnerability to your child. I'm, I'm talking about times when things didn't go well and how you moved, you know, how you got through them and moved through space and then and also sort of paving the way for attaching emotion to experience and language um when i train sports psychologists you know one of the things i say you know watch when they come in they'll tell you all this incredible narrative this incredible story and they won't use one word to reflect how they felt but it's all implied and they expect you to understand that you need to use the language back to normalize it and help them understand how feelings are adaptive and help us make the changes we need to, to go in the right direction. You just mentioned athletes getting up. Without naming names, can you share any stories about athletes who became more successful when they changed their approach from being performance-driven to being values-based or purpose-driven? Um, yes, I mean, I think, you know, when sort of what I was referring to before, um, you know, if you're not a student athlete and your, your parents send you off to college, what are they hoping for? They're hoping that you'll be stimulated by what you're learning and that that stimulation will translate hopefully into some job where you'll get paid, right? Um, and so expansion of your horizon of ideas, um, seeing more possibilities, um, you know, tapping into different parts of your potential, you know, expanding yourself. Um, is, is what parents hope for when their kids go off to college. Um, that's different for, um, you know, that, that can be experienced differently for student athletes. So them having that happen while they're really at a pretty high level of performing can feel like experientially to the student athlete, like, wow, maybe I'm not as committed anymore because I'm also really interested in whatever I see on campus here, right? And helping them understand that one doesn't mean the other, that they can have intellectual interests, that it's developmentally appropriately appropriate for them to be seeing a broader horizon and dabbling in that as they can, and still be very passionate and committed to their athletic endeavors. Um, so I think you know we don't want to over pathologize what is normal behavior even though it's occurring in the context of an elite sport um, environment. Um, it does mean there'll be some choices about how you spend your time. Um, and that's where, you know, how do you, how do you manage those needs and um, keep, keep pursuing what you're interested in 
And instead of shutting down that conversation and trying to control it, we want to allow them to, you know, bring it out and have a conversation. And they usually, you know, will make good choices. But what they also see as they they're challenged at this age is, is that sport is a vehicle through which, you know, they've come to admire people and they can admire themselves. They can grow themselves. And so a lot of times that, and then, and they identify that by, by identifying their values. Like who did you, what about sport made you want to do sport? Who do you think, you know, when you look at someone that you admire and is that something you still want? And then if I was watching you in the locker room and at competition or practice, how could I describe you? How could I tell that you are this person that you want to be, and we should be able to demonstrate that through sport. So it can really shift things up and and empower. It's kind of like you know Andre Agassi kind of wrote about this, you know, in his evolution of sport. Not exactly in those words, but yeah. Robin Schofield, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. And thank you for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. I'm Chris Meek. For more details about upcoming shows and guests. Please follow me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Chris Meek public figure and on Twitter at Chris Meek underscore USA. We'll be back next Tuesday, same time, same place with our leader from the world of business, politics, public policy, sports, or entertainment. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward. And for our USC Trojan family out there, one more time, right on. Right <laughs> <Bye> on. <laughs> Thanks, Robin. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.